Geopolitics on the Move. I'm Sean Guillory, the host of the SRB podcast. I'm Fyodor Lukyanov, the editor of Russian Global Affairs. Geopolitics on the Move is produced by Russia and Global Affairs, the graduate initiative in Russian studies at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies, and the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. The Carnegie Corporation of New York provided funding. The initial shocks of the coronavirus pandemic are waning, and global life is slowly getting back on track. Though change in response to COVID is inevitable, there's a growing sense that everything will continue as before, but only worse. The list of geopolitical challenges is intensifying. Nationalism, the clash of identities, the fragmentation of the world economy, and the erosion of the liberal economic model. As do the responses demands for greater sovereignty, dismantling arms control regimes, and escalating competition among major powers, especially between the United States and China. COVID-19 didn't create any of these. It only reinforced them. Perhaps the pandemic's most profound impact will be on the relations between people, society, and the state. COVID hit Russia at a domestic crossroad. As the virus began to ravage the world, Russia started to reform its constitution and modify its state system. Like elsewhere, the pandemic didn't torpedo this agenda. It simply complicated the path forward. Even without the unexpected upheavals, it was clear that Russian politics was entering into a new stage. Now the search for a new balance of geopolitical forces will occur in completely different conditions. What does Russia think? How much do Russian perspectives on international issues in this new moment differ from those of the United States? Are convergent, if not common, perceptions of the future possible, or will the divergences widen? In the following discussions, Geopolitics and the Move will address these issues with some of the best Russian, European, and American thinkers tackling these contemporary challenges. There was a common joke that Russia is a country with an unpredictable past because it rewrites history for every new stage of development. Paradoxically, this joke is becoming relevant for much of the world now as well. What does the battle for history mean for the future? And where will memory wars lead us? Here is Alexei Miller, professor of the European University at St. Petersburg, and Thomas Sherlock, professor of the West Point Academy and the Politics of History and Memory. So just to start off our, our, our conversation, I'd like to have uh, each of you introduce yourself. So uh, Alexei, why don't you start? My name is Alexei Miller. Mm-hmm. I'm professor and uh, chair of uh, the Center for Research in Cultural Memory and Symbolic Politics at uh, the European University at St. Petersburg. Excellent. Tom? Yes, uh, greetings. Uh, My name is Thomas Sherlock, and I'm a professor of political science at the United States Military Academy at West Point. 
Um, I uh, teach courses in comparative politics, democracy, democratization, comparative institutions, and the politics of the post-Soviet region. Um, I uh, have published a book on the topic that we're going to discuss today, Historical Narratives in the Soviet Union and Post-Soviet Russia. And uh, I look forward to the uh, discussion today. I would just like to add that I am not a representative of the U.S. government uh, for this particular function. And anything that I might say is not necessarily representative of the U.S. government or my institution. Uh, and Fyodor. Yeah, I'm Fyodor Lukyanov, editor of Russian Global Affairs Journal. Uh, in our journal, we, thanks to uh, Professor Sherlock and Professor Miller, we do uh, this uh, memory stuff since many, many years. Okay, so I thought, you know, I think the first question I have is just to just, just to provide some, some kind of general uh, definition and discussion, and that is, what is memory politics and the political use of the past? And why don't you start, Alexei? Uh, well, uh, I think that the first scientific um, approach to this topic was formulated by Maurice Halvax before the Second World War. And he was talking about uh, collective memory uh, which exists in any society. And he was looking at how this collective memory is being shaped. Uh, after Second World War, this issue became uh, very popular in uh, social sciences and humanities. Mostly uh, people focused on how big national narratives were shaped. And recently, I would say in the last 30 years, this field uh, develops with a breathtaking speed. It looks at how people use uh, narratives about the past uh, for shaping identity, for drawing borders of community, maybe for overcoming historical uh, conflicts. And I would say that until the end of the 20th century, the idea that past is the space where we overcome uh, politics, where we overcome this uh, inevitable conflictual nature of politics, uh, dominated in Europe in what used to be the European Union at that time. And common textbooks uh, written by Germans and French, uh, all ceremonies which uh, showed how United European nations uh, are overcoming uh, the legacy of uh, uh, these endless European wars, etc., etc., that was the way to understand and to approach the political use of memory. Uh, and today, uh, scholars call it a cosmopolitan approach to memory politics. Uh, but since uh, the beginning of the 21st century, uh, more and more people argue, particularly in Eastern Europe, that... Uh, Past is just another space, another uh, domain of political 
another um, way of doing politics. And uh, it's not by chance that exactly in this region, term memory wars was coined. But by now, we know that uh, this term is applied also to Asian countries. Recently, we have discovered that uh, United States are in memory war, etc., etc. And Europe is again in memory war inside their own society. So uh, we have always uh, this, how to put it, uh, national dimension of memory politics, but we also have international sphere of memory politics. Uh, and uh, they are usually connected and we legitimize decisions, we legitimize power with uh, some sort of memory politics, with some sort of narrative, with some sort of monuments. Uh, we delegitimize something with monuments uh, and narratives. Uh, we uh, uh, shape identities. So past was always used uh, for politics, but I think that today past is used uh, particularly intensively also because uh, as one German comedian used to say the future was better in the past. Just briefly, uh, I'll build on a couple of things that Alexei uh, has just articulated and that historical myths, particularly foundation myths, and I hope we can talk about this a bit later, is crucial for the legitimacy of political institutions at the level of uh, the regime, but also at the level of the state. And this, of course, draws on the psychological need of humans to be part of a group or a collective, a sense of identity that imparts meaning to existence. And so uh, with this broad uh, foundation of background, historical myths or the political politicized use of the past uh, is a powerful political weapon uh, which is capable of undermining uh, the legitimacy of your opponent and reinforcing your own legitimacy. And I would just say that the problem uh, that we're experiencing now that Alexei just mentioned is that there are uh, many, many mnemonic actors or uh, uh, entrepreneurs who are willing and able to use political myths as political weapons across post-Soviet space. And here you have this uh, extraordinary phenomenon of memory wars at a time when in Western Europe, they were moving toward what Alexei called a more cosmopolitan approach to the past. And so it's a very interesting dichotomy of how the past is approached uh, in this part of the world. I, uh, if I may, I, I would uh, maybe ask uh, both of our guests. Tom, you mentioned the founding myth as a very important uh, element. Uh, President Putin uh, spoke the day after constitutional referendum, which was uh, landslide uh, won by, by, by him. And he said suddenly again that the Russian Federation is a very young state. And historical perspective, it has been established very recently. And that means that we need uh, a longer time of establishment of this state. And it seems that uh, many countries nowadays 
countries which actually uh, were considered as being quite quite established already they uh, tried to reestablish themselves i i mean in russia there's one way but in the united states what we see uh, this summer is something uh, quite quite remarkable do we face a rearrangement of those national founding myths again well i can i can say briefly that uh, i agree entirely with what uh, fyodor just said and uh, also the comments of uh, uh, vladimir putin uh, russia the russian republic is a young state formation also its regime is a young state formation and so um I think the need for myth, and I use myth in a neutral sense here, uh, it doesn't mean that it is uh, factually inaccurate, but it is a representation of the past that evokes emotional attachment and so and collective identity. And so it's very important from a political perspective. And from this sense, when you ask yourself, uh, in terms of the memory wars, how important are the memory wars for the political actors who disseminate uh, these uh, contentious narratives. And uh, one of the problems is that most of uh, uh, the area that we're speaking about does comprise very young states, relatively young regimes, and the need for myth is very high. And also the political payoff for having this kind of antagonistic myth-making is also very high. Uh, because the whole dynamic of in-group and out-group uh, uh, has a very powerful political payoff for the entrepreneurs who present these uh, contentious, antagonistic views of the past. And that, unfortunately, is one of the reasons why the history wars are ongoing. They're intermittent sometimes, but we always return to them, it seems. I would... Uh start with saying that uh, stressing uh, this uh, Putin's point uh, that Russia is a young state might create a false uh, impression that uh, this is, uh, how to put it, dominant motive in Putin's memory politics. It's not so. It is exactly uh, Putin who, after Yeltsin, started to stress the issue of continuity, uh, this 1,000-year-old history of Russia. That is his narrative. And uh, he engages this uh, 1,000 years long history of Russia as a, sometimes he speaks about separate civilization. and he very much tries to establish a view in which pre-revolutionary Russia, the Russia of Romanovs, but also Soviet Russia, and now post-Soviet Russia, they are all united uh, in one history. But saying that uh, Russia is a young state does not mean that Russia has a short history. I mean that... Probably uh, this uh, point is made to justify uh, these games with constitution, because constitution is something which is so central for state building. 
well, for me, this brings up the the question of of what is the foundational myth in Russia? Is it still developing? Is there one? Is there still a search going on? Because you do have this long history and the narrative of trying to smooth over all three different state formations as one continuum. Um, so, what would what is the foundational myth for uh, you know the Russian Federation? So. Uh, to begin with, after 1917, the foundational myth was the Great October Socialist Revolution. And it remained so uh, till the end of the Soviet Union. After the Second World War, uh, this foundational myth was supplemented by the myth of the Great Victory in the Second World War. But this Great Victory was somehow confirming the greatness and rightness of the choice made in 1917. So Russia, without Bolshevik power, allegedly lost the war to the Germans in the First World War, and Russia, with communists at the head, won such a war. After uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was a short attempt to leave without great victory as a foundational myth. Rather, uh, the myth of Russia, which is defending democracy uh, in conditions of uh, coup d'etat of August 1991, there were three martyrs, three victims who perished defending the Russian White House. but it didn't work. So uh, since the middle of 90s, uh, the only main, only foundational myth in post-Soviet Russia is the Great Victory Day and the narrative of uh, the greatest possible victory uh, in the greatest possible war of all times. So I think in a diffuse sense, the foundation myth that we see today in gestational or emerging form is what uh, Alex referred to earlier in terms of the area of stateness, of the almost timeless quality of the Russian state. And so in terms of foundational terms, we're talking about almost a mystical uh, state which has almost always existed. A thousand years, of course, is hard for most people to comprehend. And for many people, it might as well be timeless. And so this approach produces uh, a syncretic view of history. In other words, uh, it is a view of Russian history in which the timeless existence of the Russian state is at the center. Uh, And so... In terms of this syncretic approach, the czarist area, the Soviet area, the post-Soviet era are basically folded into this larger concept of stateness, of the Russian stateness, of its inviolability. I would just say that uh, this approach, of course, uh, creates some problems for the development of uh, the contemporary Russian state and regime. Uh, This approach at least in the interpretation that Putin has embraced, is based largely upon uh, 
threats from the external environment and the need to shore up the Russian state against these particular threats. And so in terms of this approach, it may be very useful in the short term for political legitimacy of the current regime. But in terms of the development of the Russian state regime and society, it is problematic because the stress on Russia as a unique and oftentimes threatened state leaves very little room for uh, the development of a robust uh, uh, civic nation and authentic democratic institutions and the need for the development of human capital. And so uh, if this formation of the state continues, and I think you can see it in other aspects of the historical debates within Russia today, uh, it probably will be a detriment to the overall development of Russian society. Yeah. Yeah, Tom, let me ask you about this, because, you know, it, it seems to me like thinking about what you're saying is that the orientation is kind of mired in the past. And one of the problems and, and you know, one of the things foundational myths have to provide is something to propel society into the future, right? It needs to give some foundation for, you know, as you said, building like civic institutions or building like what is the Russia of tomorrow. But this this focus on the past kind of, you know, freezes that process in place. It, it, would you, you know, what would you say to that? Um, I would say that having this approach uh, to the past, that is uh, having this kind of timeless stateness uh, is good and bad. I mean, because in the expanse of the Russian uh, period, there is so much that you can emphasize that would uh, favor an interpretation of the Russian state under constant external threat. But there are also many, many examples from the Russian past that you could emphasize from Novgorod to uh, the Constituent Assembly and so on and so forth that provide the raw material. Alex also mentioned uh, the, uh, uh, the demonstrations at the White House in 1991 and so on and so forth. So there's the raw material for two competing myths here. And it depends upon the political entrepreneur, in this case, Putin, uh, which one of these he wants to emphasize. So far, it seems like he has emphasized the uh, state as a self-standing and threatened entity. But again, this is a myth that provides enough flexibility uh, to adopt a different approach. I may refer to what uh, Alexei uh, uh, reminded us about this uh, short attempt, uh, late 80s, early 90s, to reconstitution of this uh, narrative. Uh, if I remember correctly, I was a student at that time. It was an interesting uh, and very strange, looking now retrospectively, very strange attempt to uh, embed a Russian democratic movement under Yeltsin and others uh, in the same stream as Eastern Europe. So it was struggle against communism, but also uh, like against imperialism, against uh, uh, Russian imperialism. 
which was very strange because, of course, uh, Russia could not uh, basically struggle against itself. And it was fight against Soviet Union, but whether it was communist empire, which was the target, or empire as such as a target, so it, it, it was quite unfortunate. And of course, it could not lead to uh, anything uh, productive at the end. But uh, I would love to, like to ask Alexei uh, what happens now to this notion of empire, because I think the this confusion about who we are is still there in Russian uh, Russian discussion. Uh, well, uh, indeed, but uh, in order to get uh, to now, let us look first at what happened in 1990s, because exactly at that time there was a belief that uh, the future of Russia lies in the scenario of this. Uh, uh, building a civic nation and becoming what how they used to say a normal country quotation marks but soon russians discovered that uh, there are certain problems with uh, this scenario problem number one was that nobody wanted uh, to accept russian view uh, that uh, Russians, together with other peoples, nations of the Soviet Union, uh, got rid of communism, overthrown, had overthrown uh, the communist regime, and uh, have discovered freedom. Everybody uh, was welcome to this family of nations who fought communism, but Russians were, uh, so to say, the source of this communism and imperialism, and all what happened bad under communists uh, was now ascribed to the Russians. Number two uh, is that when the Soviet Union collapsed, Russians discovered that they have inherited a country uh, which by no means can be transformed into a nation state. Because if you look at Russian Federation, uh, you will find today 21 autonomous republics based on the idea that these republics are, so to say, the national property of uh, the title nations of these republics. So how you are going to build uh, a civic nation state while at least 21 uh, regions have a status of autonomous national republics and people living there believe that they are separate nations is a big story. We have uh, political scientists like Stepan and Linz who discussed this problem of not focusing exclusively on nation state as a possible model. They were talking about dichotomy, nation state and state nation. Uh, but now we uh, also talk about empire state model because uh, we lived through the 20th century with the idea that nation state is a form which is only adequate for modernity, uh, while in reality all what shaped modernity 
uh, be it industrialism, be it uh, urbanization, alphabetization, all this stuff. Uh, it was something which uh, developed in imperial metropolis, be it British or French or German, etc., etc. So today in Russia, if somebody is trying uh, to build a nation state or trying to imagine how Russia becomes a nation state, and if you look closer at the rest of the agenda, you will not be very happy with uh, what, uh, how they envisage uh, this nation state. Uh, so Russia is now in a very interesting and problematic situation in this respect. So it's not like uh, locked between uh, the past when Russia was empire and the bright future when it's going to become a, a civic nation. It's not going to become a civic nation. It has to be a conglomerate. How it works, uh, which designs it uh, develops is a huge question for the future. But uh, I like uh, that today uh, less and less people are just dogmatically uh, thinking about nation state as the only possible solution for the problems of Russia. Just one interesting detail uh, referring to what Alexei said about this uh, uh, composition of Russian Federation uh, Federation uh, inherited from, from the Soviet past. And this constitutional referendum, Vladimir Putin won uh, overwhelmingly everywhere in all Russian regions except one. This one is a very tiny Nenets autonomous district uh, which voted against amendments and the reason is that was the decision made uh, on the federal level to join to merge this Nenets autonomous district with Arhangelsk uh, uh, oblast Arhangelsk region because uh, actually this district uh, in terms of uh, administrative uh, capacity is pretty uh, yeah pretty pretty senseless but that was a challenge to national identity, to this very tiny people, very tiny nationality, but you see results. Uh, let me j just briefly uh, add something. The name of the state we are talking about, how it was put in constitution uh, in 1993, was a Russian Federation, then Russia in brackets, and the uh, constitution uh, was talking about and still talks about multinational people of Russia. Not Russian nation, which consists of many peoples or many ethnic groups, but multinational, multinational people of Russia. And uh, it's not easy to get out of this legacy. I uh, would just have one thing to say, and that goes back to uh, the points that uh, Fyodor and Alexei have mentioned, and that is uh, foundation myths and basically uh, how difficult it is to form a foundation myth. Uh, uh, and also, what would be the resonance or importance of historical myths in general? In other words, it is not enough that you simply have uh, these so-called mnemonic actors or 
uh, entrepreneurs who are willing to use historical myths for their own political benefit and so on and so forth. And not just for their own political benefit, but also as tools for state and nation building. But the point is that uh, it's a two-sided problem and that uh, the entrepreneur and his efforts need to resonate in society. That is the myths that are chosen uh, as foundation myths or otherwise need to coincide with at least large segments of the political society or the population as a whole. And so I think one of the reasons why the Yeltsin era attempt to form a foundation myth was because it was closely tied to the West as a model and also because uh, the economic conditions in the immediate post-Soviet decade were so difficult for most Russians. And so again, myths, foundation and otherwise, really do not have normative power unless they resonate in the population as a whole. And in the case of Yeltsin's attempt, they simply did not resonate. In other words, the emphasis on trying to develop a new liberal democratic order based upon the revolt against the Soviet system and alliance with the West, most people did not see much relevance to them or utility of that myth for their own personal lives. You know, this is why I think, uh, you know, what makes the victory of World War II uh, plays that that kind of role because it captures enough people's personal memory, family memory uh, across ethnic lines in the Russian Federation that it can serve as that one kind of sacred unifying moment, right? Um, I want to I want to turn to World War II because it, it hangs so heavy in terms of myth and memory and the memory wars uh, in Russia, but also in the larger region. Um, I'd like to have each of you address the issue of World War II and the function that the memory of uh, the vict- of Victory Day plays today. Um, Alexei, why don't you start? Uh, okay, uh, we talked about memory of uh, this, uh, how it is called in Russia, Great Patriotic War, as a foundation myth uh, in this society. And indeed, the memory of this war inside the country is something which unites the whole society, also uh, above the ethnic divisions. Uh, For example, in the Caucasus, you have a Caucasian war, which lasted for over 100 years where various peoples uh, of Caucasus fought the war against the Russians, against the Russian Empire. Uh, But this memory uh, is somehow overshadowed by this uh, legacy of the Second World War, where uh, these peoples, together with Russians, fought the common enemy. For today's Russia, the memory of the Second World War uh, is extremely important also uh, for international relations, international standing, because that is the space where Russia feels under attack, and reasonably so, for two reasons. Uh, number one is that the narrative of the war in which the Allied powers, the Soviet Union, the United States, Brits, uh, later France, uh, fought the common enemy, which embodied the ultimate evil, and 
saved the world basically is under attack. Uh, is under attack uh, sometimes by uh, offering a new narrative in which uh, Stalin, together with Hitler, basically triggered the Second World War, uh, which was started by two totalitarian powers. And here, this uh, the tale of two totalitarianisms becomes central. And uh, that means that all what happened, uh, all terrible what happened in the, during the Second World War, uh, is uh, the responsibility of Germans and Russians. And that is one way of uh, challenging this uh, narrative which was coined after the Second World War. Another less dramatic but still uh, perceived uh, with a lot of pain and irritation in Russia is simply questioning Russian contribution. Uh, you might say that, uh, as Trump did recently, that America, together with Brits, uh, had defeated Nazi Germany, forgetting to add uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, or you may might say that uh, Allied forces liberated Auschwitz, not mentioning that it was actually the Red Army, and so on and so forth. Uh, this produces extremely painful impression in Russia. But there is also yet another new tendency, which is perceived in Russia as this, how to put it, anti-Russian development. When talking about the Second World War, people basically uh, mention the war in two or three introductory statements, while focusing after that on what happened after the war. And after the war, the, the part of the world which was liberated by Americans became free and happy, while the part of the world which was liberated by the Russians, liberated in quotation marks here, or rather occupied instead of the German occupation, the reoccupation, uh, became unhappy, unfree, and suffered for decades under the Soviet or Russian yoke. Uh, and uh, this narrative, as you can imagine, is not popular uh, in Russia. Yes, I agree with uh, everything Alexei just said. Um, I'll just say a couple of things to step back a little bit. And so uh, the myth, and again, I say this in neutral terms, of the Great Patriotic War is, from a politician's point of view, an exemplary myth. Uh, it touches virtually... Uh, everyone in society, to go back to your point, Sean, uh, it's a highly emotional memory, right? and it also resonates in a very positive way in terms of self-sacrifice, but with the coda of victory over a, uh, a rapacious and evil force. And so it is a perfect building blocks for an effective myth. Uh, on the other hand, uh, to emphasize to the extent that the regime does, and by regime I mean uh, uh, the Russian uh, government, uh, uh, seems to suggest uh, relative weakness in normative terms uh, of, that, uh, of that government. To emphasize so much this foundation, as Alexei said, 
to the exclusion of just about emphasizing any other myth, I think is also um, uh, revealing. But another broad point to make is that one of the reasons why you have such a struggle over World War II, uh, its origins, its uh, path, and also its aftermath, is that, again, for the political entrepreneurs, both in post-Soviet and post-communist space, as well as those entrepreneurs in Russia itself, uh, uh, understand that myth does not like complexity. Myth does not like uh, nuance. And so therefore, what you have is the politicians and much of the society in post-communist and post-Soviet uh, Europe gravitating toward a very simplified, unidimensional view of uh, 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 the role of the Soviet Union, i.e. a very negative role of the Soviet Union during this period, squeezing out anything that could be viewed as a positive contribution. And I think you also see that from the Russian side as well, particularly in Putin's most recent uh, uh, publication, which I think came out in the national interest. And so, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, a pretty intractable problem trying to get both of these sides to agree on some common ground as to uh, World War II. I must say that the European Union as a whole uh, uh, could do a stronger job in trying to have some sort of uh, dialogue, not necessarily reconciliation, but some sort of dialogue between the two sides. But uh, at least from the European side, uh, post-communist and post-Soviet states have largely managed the direction of this narrative that is one that's very negative toward uh, the Soviet Union. Again, on the Russian side, there is very little mention of the problematic nature of Soviet behavior before, during, and after the war. As Tom just mentioned, Vladimir Putin just recently published an article in the National Interest titled The Real Lessons of the 75th uh, anniversary of World War II. Um, there's a lot of things that are that are a bit, you know, confusing for me about this article, particularly where it was published. But what was its purpose? Uh, well, to understand the purpose of this article, we have to go to September 2019, when the European Parliament adopted a resolution uh, which spoke about uh, these two totalitarian states who uh, triggered the Second World War. And then the whole resolution is about what Russia had done wrong or had didn't do uh, properly addressing this legacy. Uh, Putin was not aware of this resolution in October uh, when he first got this question, and I think that that was the moment when he became really concerned. Because before that, it was uh, a kind of common thinking in Russia that, okay, we have East European countries which promote this narrative, and we have West European countries which uh, understand that this narrative doesn't work and shouldn't be an uh, official one. Uh, now this resolution was adopted by the European Parliament with overwhelming majority. And uh, 
Putin waited till December uh, for somebody among European leaders, political leaders, because we know that European Parliament doesn't consist of political leaders, to intervene, but nobody said anything. So Putin uh, made a huge speech, uh, which was called, uh, ironically, a lecture in history, in front of his partners uh, of uh, Eurasian Union, uh, which was full of extremely aggressive, uh, extremely painful attacks uh, on Polish behavior on the eve of the Second World War. And there are plenty of things which can be said about Polish behavior, which are painful to Poles, starting from their anti-Semitism and ending with uh, their uh, participation in partition of Czechoslovakia with, together with Hitler. Uh, after the Munich uh, Agreement, which was signed by Brits and French. So, uh, and there was uh, very clear that what he wants to do, he wants to uh, blow up this silence and this tranquility uh, after this resolution. Uh, but in January, he talked in uh, Jerusalem, in Yad Vashem, uh, where they commemorated the anniversary, 75th anniversary of uh, liberation of Auschwitz, which is also very symbolic. And in this speech, he said that he invites leaders of Security Council members uh, to meet and discuss uh, these historical issues and how we should uh, address all these issues. And uh, what we see here is uh, this, in these two acts of Putin's memory politics. Uh, in one, we see this typical behavior uh, for memory war, which memory war is not about dialogue. Memory war is about establishing your view as the dominant. Now, there was an invitation for dialogue. And during this climax of his memory politics, he promised an article. And then we have got coronavirus, then we've got basically death season in uh, world politics and so on. Uh, but he had promised an article and he came up with an article uh, which is definitely not a historical research, uh, which is a political statement uh, or which brings in certain historical facts under the slogan that, look, guys, uh, all narratives of the Second World War have been heavily censored. American narrative, take British narrative, take our narrative. We are open for a new discussion. Let us invite historians. Let us open archives. Uh, let us create uh, atmosphere in which they can address these issues. And then we shall make political sense out of this. So that is, for me, the main message. And I would greet this message because after cosmopolitan approach to memory became past, and this antagonistic approach to memory politics became dominant, 
we need some way out. And people in Western Europe formulated this way out, suggesting that some sort of uh, agonistic approach, which assumes that, yes, people can disagree, and uh, this disagreement will stay. But this disagreement can be discussed uh, in mutually respective dialogue. That is something which is missing today from memory politics, and that is why we call it uh, memory wars. Uh, but of course, uh, there was quite a few people who uh, saw it uh, as an attempt to manipulate history, etc., etc. Uh, and I mean, Putin can never complain that there are not enough critics of whatever he does. Yes, uh, just a, a couple of points about what Alexei just mentioned. Um, so I agree that the resolution in 2019 was an important precipitant of uh, Putin's article and other events that uh, are taking place on the memory front in Russia. Uh, and in terms of what Alexei just said about a way out. And I think Putin himself provided a framework for a possible way out uh, in 2009 at another anniversary, the beginning of the war, uh, when he gave a speech at the Westerplatte in Poland. And basically he said, look, we all contributed. We all passed the buck in the 1930s allowing Hitler to come to power and also allowing Hitler to build up the largest war machine in history and also to attack each of us sequentially. Because of our buck-passing nature, Hitler was able to attack each of us in a line and not simultaneously, which would have led to his defeat years earlier. And so basically it is that complexity uh, that uh, Putin demonstrated a willingness to embrace. There were certain external structural conditions that encouraged him to make that kind of historical uh, approach. Right? Uh, regional and worldwide economic crisis, which required uh, cooperation with Eastern European partners and so on and so forth and the EU as a whole. Many of those conditions are gone. It seems now with his article, Putin is now flattening and purifying the narrative, right? Where in Westerplatte, he was willing to at least countenance the suggestion that both sides bore blame. He wasn't willing necessarily to assign causal weight to either side, but still it was an important initiative. Now I think you have a retraction of that helped mightily by the EU resolution of 2019. And essentially, uh, you now have a narrative that doesn't mention the forcible incorporation of the Baltic states, but rather justifies it on legalized grounds in Putin's article. Nothing said about Katyn, massacre of Polish officer corps and other elites and so on and so forth. And so again, I think you have a hardening of both sides. And uh, again, I go back to Putin's Westerplatte speech that there is an alternative, right? There is an alternative. May record uh, a certain disagreement with what uh, John has just said. 
uh, <clears throat> on the one hand, I agree. Yes, it is flattening of narrative. It is uh, attempt uh, all what he has written about uh, Baltic states is total nonsense historically. But uh, one very important point: the central point of what he said at Westerplatte was that he basically condemned uh, the uh, Stalin-Hitler. Uh, agreement in August 1939. Uh, in 19, uh, in 2014 and later, he and after he, many, many other political figures in Russia uh, claimed that actually this agreement was a huge victory of Soviet uh, diplomacy. But in this article, he comes back to the point he made in Westerplatte and he condemns this agreement between Stalin and Hitler. And he comes back exactly to this point. We all are responsible for what happened. So in this respect, it was, yes, it's flattening of the narrative. Uh, many things like uh, Baltic, this annexation of the Baltic states was uh, badly treated in his article. But this point about Soviet Union being responsible uh, for August uh, 1939 uh, is there. Uh, Tom, I, I do want to give you a chance to, to respond if you would like to. I would say just briefly that uh, the points that Alexei mentions about the National Interest article are true, but there is they are embedded in a larger narrative which blames the West primarily for the problems of World War II. Uh, it is true that in Westerplatt, uh, Putin did condemn the uh, 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 Nazi-Soviet Pact of 1939, but it was only echoed, a very faint echo in my opinion, in the national interest piece. And also it was left alone and there was no positive connection to uh, the consequences of that uh, particular uh, agreement. In other words, Soviet behavior in Eastern Poland, the incorporation of the Baltic states, and so on and so forth. So you can condemn that pact, absolutely, and its secret protocol, but then you must go on and say that it's much more difficult, if impossible, to justify these other behaviors of Stalin at that time. But I think it's a, it's an important point of disagreement and uh, a one for discussion. Yes, I, I, I wanted, uh, uh, listening to what Tom said uh, a bit earlier, uh, mentioning that any uh, national uh, mythology is, uh, should be simplistic. It, it shouldn't be that, that too uh, complicated. And uh, fair enough, of course, uh, it's not uh, history as uh, a science, it's history as a political tool. Uh, if I may ask Tom about what is going on in the United States in this regard, because uh, United States had extremely strong uh, national foundation as, uh, as this picture, the narrative of uh, founding fathers and so on, which was that strong that it had the potential of soft power worldwide, basically. Now, uh, looking uh, from a side, of course, we are not there. We don't know what, what really happens. But looking from a side, it looks like the right thing to do 
would be to remove, for example, all founding fathers from from money, because all of them do not match anymore this very high standard of moral um, criteria, which uh, history should uh, should stick to. Uh, can we expect some kind of a reevaluation of founding myths in the United States as well? But if I may, Fyodor, thank you very much. Uh, so this is such a crucial question that we are literally living through. And so without more distance, it's hard to have any sort of uh, definitive answer, obviously. Uh, but uh, I can say a, a few words about that. I'm very interested also in your perspective and uh, Alex's perspective uh, from abroad as to what's going on, all right? Uh, and so uh, if you put this in comparative terms, we can contrast Russia and the United States. And they're basically, you could say, roughly opposite trends taking place in terms of the treatment of uh, core historical myths. Uh, there's the strengthening and defense of core myths in the Russian case. We are just talking about uh, Putin's speech. But the pretty much exact opposite phenomenon is taking place in the United States, where you have attacks on core myths and the decay of the foundation myth in particular. Although it goes far beyond the foundation myth, uh, in Columbus, Ohio, of all places, there are removing statues of Christopher Columbus in public spaces. And this is uh, how far back this assessment of the uh, uh, violent, uh, exploitative, and oppressive elements of American history are being reassessed. Uh, not too far from where I live, they're taking down the statue of uh, Theodore Roosevelt in front of the Museum of Natural History, and so on and so forth. Uh, many, many other examples that we can talk about. Uh, and this has spread out from the initial attacks on Confederate statuary, all right, and Confederate memory. And so where it stops, I could probably uh, make some attempt to at least give a broad idea of what uh, uh, might happen. And in my opinion, this reassessment will continue, uh, but in a context of a, a, a relatively productive debate that preserves the core of this foundation myth, but in a more stable, legitimate form. And let me just spend a, a minute or two talking about the political dynamics of uh, these attacks on the foundation myth and what might uh, happen to that foundation myth, uh, its survival, its destruction, and so on and so forth. I would say there's probably several reasons why the uh, American foundation myth uh, despite the attacks that it's undergoing, will uh, will survive, all right, in a positive form, all right? And by survive, I mean not just for the political class, all right, but also for society as a whole. And I'll give you a few reasons why I think that is the case. Uh, first, aggressive protests on the West, all right, have um, dissipated uh, in large part, um, uh, and so that is an important development. Aggressive protests on the right, equally important, 
never really materialized. That is, white nationalist groups offended by attacks on Confederate monuments and exercised by further attacks on the foundation myth. Of course, their displeasure and virulent attacks on this process are in full display on the internet, but they have yet to make their uh, presence on the national political stage. That is a white nationalist or quasi-white nationalist backlash. And so what you have is the dissipation, it seems, on the left, and also a timid reaction on the right. And so much of what happens in the political center becomes very, very important. Um, And so what happens with the political center? In terms of incumbent politicians, even conservative Republicans, who you would think would have the vested interest in preserving the foundation myth in its original form, okay, uh, have now been moving to try and get in front of this issue, Uh, perhaps even to the point of two Republican congressmen and senators recommending that Columbus Day be changed to Juneteenth Day, which of course is the date uh, uh, that celebrates uh, manumission in, uh, after the Civil War. And so you have the political center agreeing in broad strokes that reform is necessary, in some cases radical reform. I think civil society in the United States will also remain very engaged with this issue, but in a broad-based movement, one of the most important things that you see in the recent Black Lives Matter protests is that uh, white America has joined in. And therefore, the fissures that white nationalists would like to see develop have not emerged yet, have not emerged. Rather, there is consensus that something needs to be done. Uh, what needs to be done? Uh, I'll just spend a minute talking about can I, can I interrupt you and just ask a question? How much of, of, you know, based on what you just said about the consensus, about uh, the possibility of, uh, you know, a redefinition or renegotiation of the American foundational myth, how much of this do you think is also predicated upon the leadership in Washington? And if this leadership is changed, will this, do you see this discussion going on? I mean, a lot of it, it seems, is also a reaction to, you know, who occupies the presidency. Um, I would say that, uh, in my opinion, just as the White House has not demonstrated strong leadership on the coronavirus problem, uh, there is also uh, very little consistent direction on this issue as well. It tends to be episodic, sporadic, and so on and so forth, leaving it to other memory entrepreneurs, if you will, to basically move this issue forward. So I think it's a wash, at least at this time, in terms of uh, national leadership, if by that you mean the executive. Uh, But I think there's much more effort on the part of individuals in the Senate and the House of Representatives in both parties to move this issue forward, but also to contain it as well, to preserve the uh, contours, the contours of the foundation myth. And finally, I would just say one of the reasons why this may be less of a politically divisive issue 
is that for years now, American history textbooks and also many other aspects of American civil society have been questioning the self-congratulatory aspects of the original foundation myth representation that I myself grew up with, that it was an entirely flat narrative, completely heroic, congratulatory, and so on and so forth. That has been picked apart for decades now. And since the United States is a federal system, you have different textbooks for different regions and different narratives and so on and so forth. But the bottom line, and I, I wrote a piece for Fyodor's uh, uh, journal some time ago about this issue, what you are seeing, what you are seeing now is a complexification of the foundation myth. And probably for the better, because it's going to become, I think, a more believable myth for people rather than that old, stale, self-congratulatory, heroic myth. These were individuals, the founding fathers, who had strengths, also weaknesses. They made enormous errors of judgment and moral, uh, uh, questionable moral judgments, uh, but they also made contributions as well. And again, to go to contradict myself, it is that complexity of the myth that myth makers don't like which I think will save the foundation myth. Alexei, I'd, li I'd like to hear your impression of, of what's going on here in the United States. Frankly, I don't feel competent uh, uh, judging about uh, this, but uh, I rather would formulate uh, uh, two brief points. Point number one, uh, when two Americans discuss uh, whether the foundation myth uh, survives. It is important that uh, they agree that it should survive, but also important is that they discuss is uh, as a process which is not certain. Uh, and the second point is that uh, I think that I would give some money to uh, a person who would tell me uh, what happens in the United States uh, after the presidential elections this year. Uh, because uh, whatever is the outcome, I don't see how significant part of society uh, can quietly accept it. And uh, that is uh, extremely uh, nervous and unpredictable situation for me. It's, it's kind of for us, a lot of us, <laughs> if I may say so. Um, I certainly don't have any insight into into what's going to happen. But I do think, I mean, this and this went was to my question to Tom, is that I do think the intensity, this is just my impression, the intensity of the iconoclasm that's going on now is in direct response to, uh, you know, the, the, the last four years of Trump. Uh, and I wonder if that intensity will still be there if he's not reelected. And that I don't know. This is sort of a trifecta, you know, of uh, the greatest economic crisis since the 1930s, the greatest health crisis since uh, 1918, and also one of the greatest demonstrations of uh, uh, brutality, you know, captured on screen. And so all of these coming together uh, produced a perfect storm. But I would say that underlying that was already a fertile soil for 
rethinking the foundation myth, but in a more reasoned way, rather than tearing down statues and throwing them into the Hudson River. So uh, it is very complex. Alexei is absolutely right. Uh, it's a period of great uneasiness. Uh, whenever a foundation myth uh, is attacked in this way, but uh, it is my impression that, um, uh, I mean, for a, a myth to be discredited, it really needs to have some resonance in material conditions. And uh, here, I think there's so much ambiguity that there are many aggrieved groups in the United States, but there has also been significant advance for those groups over the past decades. And so it is that ambiguity, I think, that will uh, protect the foundation myth, at least during an initial period of discussion. But anyway, this is, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a very, very complicated uh, issue. So I want to uh, begin to, to wrap things up here. Fyodor, do you have anything you'd like to maybe have us conclude with, you know, a question to conclude with? Otherwise, I can ask something. You know, I, uh, it was an extremely interesting part, uh, the, the last one about the uh, U.S. Uh, being by far not a specialist in what is going on in the United States, again, just impression from the outside. It seems sometimes that, uh, as uh, Tom mentioned, uh, there is a development which is to a certain extent similar to Russian, but the opposite one. But the reason is the same. In the United States, uh, maybe accelerated and stimulated by economic crisis, but not uh, created by, by, by pandemic, uh, there is a severe and profound social, social problem, socioeconomic problem with the model of development. And uh, this uh, debate uh, about uh, liberal economy, libertarian approaches, or more uh, social system uh, which should be introduced, that is actually profound and uh, absolutely crucial for the future of the United States. But no one knows what to do with this because that, that, that requires completely different level of leadership and new ideas. Meanwhile, to discuss uh, uh, racial inequality, racism uh, and uh, uh, the reassessment of the past in a way, it's easier because you know how to do it. You know in which terms it should be done and, and, and so on. So in a way, it's a replacement for the real discussion about the future as uh, history in Russia, history debate in Russia is a replacement for the debate uh, uh, about the future here. So, but from completely different angles. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I think this is a, a potentially good issue to end on in terms of, you know, how how you know, as Fyodor put forward, how do these memory wars in, in some respects, as we see them all over the world and, you know, they're going on, there seems to be a, we're in a period of intensity of this, of these issues. Uh, how do they serve as a, as a form of somewhat kind of displacement to, you know, more difficult questions about the future? Or are they always part of that discussion about the future? I think that we are still uh, in a situation when we sound strange, but consider that we are more trying to save something from the past than to think about the future. 
uh, I remember I lived through this period in the Soviet Union uh, when people were still, they knew that something was changing, they knew that uh, ideology was not working, but they were desperately trying to save some element of this ideology. And for that, they were looking for the uh, for enemies. Two years ago, I listened to a talk by some very prominent Western intellectual who said, okay, uh, yes, there are plenty of problems uh, which we have to uh, address in our planning future, understanding what's going on. But all this discussion of mistakes, etc., should be put aside for a while because we have to close our ranks against uh, Putin's fascism and Orban's fascism. He was talking in Budapest. So this idea that uh, again, it is about uh, uh, uniting ourselves against an external enemy as a solution to our internal problems. And this is not the debate about the future. I don't see it yet. Uh, I agree with Alexei. I think what you see is a consistent phenomenon which is now strengthening, and that is the othering of the external environment uh, in Europe uh, as well as in Russia as a substitute for domestic reform, addressing uh, extremely intractable problems. Uh, you see uh, this also in the United States where attacks on Russia is used as a kind of dubinka, a cudgel in which to advance uh, political agendas, right? Uh, it seems to really not be nearly as effective politically as such attacks were against the Soviet Union during the Cold War, but still they stand in the way of productive relations on the few areas that you can still agree with uh, bilaterally, uh, interstate between Russia and the United States. But I think it also distracts from needed domestic reforms in the United States. And so uh, hopefully uh, there will be new leaders that come forward uh, sooner rather than later who are willing to engage in reasoned dialogue and not uh, depend upon these kinds of flattened myths which really create more conflict rather than cooperation. You've been listening to Geopolitics on the Move. Geopolitics on the Move is produced by Russia and Global Affairs, the Graduate Initiative in Russian Studies at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies, and the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. The Carnegie Corporation of New York provided funding. The theme music is focused by A.A. A. Alto. Until next time, bye. Bye.